You're too much. Thank you all, and thank you, Frank. I deserve that after all the things I've done to you. Uh, but thank you very kindly. Now, we'll dispense with this foolishness and get on with the word. Let's turn. You're something else, you guys. All right. Romans chapter 16. I, and by the way, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else and do anything other than this right now. So maybe we'll stop announcing birthdays this year. <laughs> uh, and we'll just honor everyone's privacy. And <laughs> Romans chapter 16, verse 17. 16, 17. Let's take a few moments of silent prayer so that I can collect myself so that we can prepare in the usual way for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we're very grateful to be in this place tonight. I'm grateful to be with those whom you've called out of this world and who are no longer in it, no longer of it, though we are in it. And we thank you, Father, that we understand that you've declared war on the present evil age, that we are conscripted and recruited into your service as soldiers of our commander-in-chief, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that this is our briefing time. This is the time which we are briefed so that we can have an undistracted attentiveness to you and an undivided love for your person and for one another in Christ. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be unhindered, ungrieved, unsquelched or quenched, And therefore, free to manifest to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines ever and always in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen. Tonight's message is simply called Bits and Pieces, for reasons that you'll find out pretty soon. Romans sixteen seventeen. I urge you, brothers and sisters... The word Adelphoi here, though it's often translated just brothers, it should denote both genders. I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eyes open, is the best way to translate this passage. For those who cause dissensions and set traps, contrary to the doctrine that you have learned, turn away from them. Very emphatic. The word that I translate urge here is parakaleo. Parakaleo. It's used four times in what I'm calling the right flank of Romans, that we're pressing toward the center from the right flank, Romans 12 through 16. From the left flank, Romans 1 through 4. 
we're pressing. Let's just put this over here. We're pressing toward the center, which is two sections, five through eight and nine through 11, two central sections. The press is toward these. In this right flank, which is extremely critical, and often when teachers teach this, they get out of gas by the time they get to this section. So I'm taking it on in a kind of a pincer movement at first because it's extremely important. In this left-right flank, there are four uses of the word parakeleo, and three of them are very urgent, and they're almost an insistence uh, by the Apostle Paul. They are an urgent insistence on certain things. And, in fact, the section begins in 12.1 with this very verb, parakeleo. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters that you present your body as a living sacrifice. So urge is para kaleo. means to encourage, to exhort, to appeal urgently to. It is deployed three times with particular immediacy by Paul, requiring an instantaneous obedience. And one time, one other time, it talks about those who encourage. There's a specific ministry of encouragement, paraklesis. And that's within the spiritual gifts. But three other times, it's deployed with particular immediacy in this last section. In 12.1, he urges parakaleo by the mercies of God that his siblings in Rome offer their bodies as a living sacrifice to God. In 1530, we'll get to these passages in the course of our study eventually, in 1530 of Romans, he urges his siblings once again, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, there's that phrase that we used last week, in the front flank, the left flank. And in this one, it's really interesting. In fact, this struck me when I saw this. He urges his siblings through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit. What a phrase that is, the love of the Spirit, which, again, reaches back to Romans 5 in the center. It goes to the center. The Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. So we have through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have through the love of the Spirit. That, again, meaning the love of God poured out into our hearts. God is love. His gift to us is the gift of his own love. And so, he urges them to join him in his agona, together with him in his agony, agona, which is the arena of contention. He pictures himself here in an arena of contention, as he often does. In Philippians, we have the same thing. The word is agona, A-G-O-N-A, which is the centerpiece of a word in that passage, 1530. Soon agona, which is referring to together with him in his arena. So he says he urges them to join him in his agona by their prayers to God, On his behalf, specifically, by their prayers 
to God on his behalf. That's how we share in the agona of Paul. And that's how congregations and saints participated in the agona of communicators of the word of God, gospel preachers, pastor teachers. Then he gives three specific requests in 1531 to 32. Three specific. He he kind of gives you a list to pray for, what to pray for. And he does, does for the Roman saints. Three specific requests. Whatever we may say of, about what Paul is doing here, and every commentator wants to give their opinion, we know one thing. Whatever he's doing, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of that the Spirit has poured out into his heart. In 1532, we have a direct connection to Romans 1.10, which we studied last Wednesday, and Romans 1.13, which regards his strong desire to visit them, his longing to see them. This is an apostolic longing. This is the mother heart of the Apostle Paul, which is often... A theme throughout Galatians 4:19, 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 and following. In 1617, then, we have perhaps the most urgent use of parakaleo, the final use of it, and the most urgent use of parakaleo. The verb is related to the noun parakletos, which is should be familiar to us from John's gospel. Parakletos. That's a noun form, and it's a name or a title or a function, which is one of the names applied to the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus himself calls the Spirit of Truth in John's Gospel. 14, 16 to 17 comes to mind of John. John 16, 13 comes to mind. 15, 26, a few other places. And it's also a title, Parakletos, is a title to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Parakletos, and it could mean in that sense advocate, helper, comforter, mostly advocate in 1 John 2, 1, where it's applied to, again, the Lord Jesus Christ, John's first epistle, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. If anyone sins, he has a parakletos with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Note that phrase, the righteous one, because in Romans 1.17, we have a reference to my righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. And so we have a Christocentric interpretation of that passage. That'll be coming up to later on in this year. It means primarily to call to one side, literally, and it can have the sense of a request, can have kind of a gentle request of comfort and cheer. It can even signify consolation or conciliation, the conveyance of it. In three uses, then, of its four uses on the right flank of Romans, that's chapters 12 to 16, It has the sense of to appeal to, to urge, and even to insist. So again, there's a particularly urgent ring for Paul 
in his words, which are really the word of God, empowered by the love of the Spirit, to the saints in Rome in the 50s A.D. And remember, there is a study of Romans, the epistle, on the level of our own time. So its insistence is the same to us right here, right now, in the third millennium from the birth of Christ, which we call now 2018. Turn away from them. That's another urgent request. Turn away is eklino. E-K-K-L-I-N-O. Eklino. We don't have something quite like it in the English, although we do have the reverse of that, which is incline. Incline. But this we have it almost, if it were in English words, it would almost have to be excline, where Incline directs its attention towards something, excline away from something. Turn away is a eklino. It's the same verb used in Romans 3.12. For the turning away of all the sons of Adam from God. They are all turned away, says God, from his standpoint as a high and holy one. They have all turned away from God. So we have our English words incline and decline. This word means to excline, to go away from and not toward those who cause dissensions, who are stirring up conflict, creating divisions, sowing discord among the siblings or the saints. And this is exactly the opposite of what Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ, is doing. He's sowing the word, the word of peace. He's an ambassador of Christ with a word of reconciliation, not only to the world, but to the saints. A word of reconciliation, a word of peace. He is the vehicle for Yahweh to speak peace to his people, as Psalm 85, 8 says. And so he's promoting unity through humility while these about whom he warns are dividers through pride. Only by pride comes contention, said the proverb writer. Divisions through pride, which encourages group biases and misrepresents Paul's gospel. Keep your eyes open is scopeo. Keep your eyes open. This fits under the first of the five transcendent precepts be attentive be alert keep your eyes open or as misty mountain hop by led zeppelin says when you go down to the streets today you better open your eyes now that's a paraphrase i'm going to paraphrase another rock song pretty soon it's a desperate attempt to preserve my youth Because once you've crossed that line that I crossed today, 40 years, you know, you've got to start thinking about mortality and things like that, you know. Keep your eyes open. And what this is is the kind of keen attentiveness that's required in seasons of temptation. It is specifically the kind of attentiveness that is required in seasons of temptation. 
As Jesus said to his disciples, couldn't you watch with me just for an hour? Couldn't you stay alert just for an hour in a season of temptation? You don't want to be blindsided by a temptation that can take you out of the spiritual life for a few weeks or months. In verse 18, he bluntly profiles, Paul does some profiling of this kind of dissembler and dissenter. A dissembler, D-I-S-S-E-M-B-L-E-R, is a word I've chosen here because it's somebody who doesn't appear to be what they really are. They have kind of a mask on. And a dissenter. Now, we have the right to dissent in our own nation if there's a policy that we deem to be unjust or we deem to be oppressive or we deem to be immoral. We have the right to dissent. But this is a dissension from the gospel of God about his son. This is offering some other thing like circumcision as a sanctifying power, physical circumcision. Or, on the other hand, saying, let's go out and do evil that good may come, which is a slogan of certain Gentile pagan Christians who deemed themselves strong in faith, but they weren't in faith at all. And so keep your eyes open, because he says in verse 18, for such dissemblers do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word is duluo, which means as slaves. So we're going all the way back here from Romans 16, 18, all the way back to 1, 1. You see there's a, there's a knitting, there's a kind of going back and forth here in a pincer movement. They do not serve. And Paul announces himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, does he not? Romans 1, 1. Here they say, he says, they do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ as imperial slaves, I put, because he's the king and their service is a slavery to the king. But they do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ as imperial slaves. Very much unlike Paul then and others on his team, like Timothy. As Philippians 1.1 says, Paul and Timothy slaves on the contrary, he says, very strong adversative here. On the contrary, they are slaves to their own belly. What does that mean? We'll see. Belly. It's koilia. We'll see it in a moment. And through smooth speech and flattery, they seduce the hearts of the unsuspecting. So if you're not attentive and you're unsuspecting and wrongfully naive, you could get sucked into any winds of doctrine that blow into town. Belly is koilia. We've seen this before in Philippians. Koilia, K-O-I-L-I-A. And it's related to, in the literal sense, it's related to a word in the English, which is C-O-E-L-I-A-C, or sometimes the... Other spelling of it, which is acceptable, drops the O. Celiac. There is that which is called the celiac disease, especially because of the distortion of our foods now by all kinds of things that men do to God's good stuff. But the word koilia is where we get our word celiac. And so the literal meaning of it is the abdomen or the abdominal cavity. 
Figuratively speaking, and that's what Paul's doing here, figuratively speaking, and Ernst Kosman in his Romans 1980 study is on the money when he says, Coelia represents thereby the essence of the sarks. Sarks meaning the flesh. That's one of the big oppressive powers, the sarks. So he says, again, figuratively speaking, and again, Kosman, in my opinion, is on the money when he says, Koilea represents thereby the essence of the sarks in its extreme fallenness to the world, to the point of libertine excess, scourged by Paul in 1 Corinthians six twelve and following. And then he says, decisive is the religious camouflage and the deception which this involves. The slaves of their own belly also are cloaked with religious camouflage. They have smooth speech. They've camouflaged their deception with flattery. They spend a lot of time building up the audience, not in terms of encouragement in Christ, but in terms of kind of a slimy flattery that people fall for all the time. Flattery is a very poor imitation of true edification. The apostle now is in the territory of the Genesis narrative when he uses that word. Now you say, how would you say that? How? Because the, the most profound doctrine that Paul proclaims in Romans is from the Genesis narrative, especially Genesis 3, because he talks about Adam. And when you have... Like in Hebrews 11, you have what I call abbreviated bios, abbreviated biographies. Abel did such and such. Noah moved with fear and reverence and built an ark. Each one has a kind of like something that abbreviates their life in terms of faith. Paul abbreviated the life of Adam in terms of his unfaith or his disobedience. And so the one act that characterizes Adam was an act of disobedience by which all human beings are brought under the control and power of sin, and then they die. But Jesus Christ, then, is anticipated by this in his one act of obedience, which is really his whole life from birth to the cross, an act of obedience that culminated in his obedience as a slave to the death of the cross. And then God has also exalted him and given him a name above every other name so that at the mention of his name, in the parousia, every knee will genuflect. Every tongue acknowledge, every eye will see, every all flesh will experience the salvation of Yahweh in him. So where do I get off saying that this is still part of Genesis 3, which Paul uses so Fruitfully in Romans 5. He also stays with the Genesis Genesis narrative in Romans 4 when he's teaching about Abraham, the narrative of Abraham's life. But if you'll notice, and if you have the Septuagint translation on your computer or at your home, in Genesis 3.14 we have the use of koilea for the first time in the Greek text. God declares war on the serpent and his seed. And he decrees the following to the serpent. You will move on your belly, Koelia. You will move on your belly, Koelia. 
and eat dust all the days of your life. What is this, again, metaphorically referring to the fact that the serpent travels on his scuts. He travels on his guts. He moves on his belly. And this is what Paul is kind of saying. These who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ move on their belly. They're moved by their sarks, and so they're under control of Satana, the adversary. They are under the control of Satan. This is the one verse, and I'm amazed at these so-called intellectual academicians who get into Romans and they want to eliminate. You know what they wanted to eliminate? A lot of these heavyweights. Romans 16, 17 to 20 from Romans. And 16, 25 to 27. But I'm actually emphasizing these because I see the interpretation of Romans in them. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. So those who serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly are people who are moved by their sin-controlled Adamic ontology and they are serpentine. They are under the adversary who is named the old serpent in Revelation. But he's called Satan openly right here. For the first time in all of Romans, Paul unveils a culprit who is the cause of the resentiment, the group biases, the pride that divides, the human boasting, the arrogance that has caused the church to be in bits and pieces. So those who serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly are people who are moved by their sin-controlled Adamic ontology. Genesis 3.14 then is followed immediately by the second and third decrees of God to the old serpent. He nails him with three decrees. We could say three degrees, the third degree. He gives him the third degree. He then says in 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, the descendant of the woman, the seed of the woman, Christ, who's also the seed singular of Abraham, who's also the seed of David of the royal line, he will bruise your head. Now the word is actually tereo in the Greek, which means he's going to watch your head as it moves to strike. He's going to be in combat. In other words, if you're in combat with a serpent, with a cobra, with a rattlesnake, you're going to watch not his tail. That's where he's going to distract with a rattle in the rattlesnake's case. So you're looking at the tail and the head hits you. So it's a combat thing. It's a, it's a declara- declaration of war. God has declared war on the present evil age, and he's invaded it with two divine invasions, missions, as we're going to see over and over again. He puts the hostility there between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he, the descendant of the woman, will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. And it's kind of like the idea of, man, you see a guy come to work, and he's limping a little bit, and you say, what happened? You say, look at my heel, and they go, wow, that's really got a bruise on it. And you say, yeah, we ought to see the other guy. I kicked him in the head with my heel. You ought to see his head. So it's like, you ought to see the other guy. So, the point is, though, the seed of the woman bruises the head of the snake. 
And then God does something. He, he says, in Romans 16, as this goes on, he moves from the Genesis 3.14, the movement on the belly, to the crushing of the serpent. And he says what? In Romans 16, 17, or 16.20, rather, he will say, now the God of peace will soon break in pieces. Now I did that on purpose because that's really what it says. The God of peace will soon break in pieces. The adversary, Satan, under your feet. Then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now, let's back up just a little bit. God promises that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the snake. But then in Romans, it says God then breaks this, this snake in pieces. The word suntribo is used, and it means to break in pieces. What's he doing? He's showing that through the impact of the epistle to the Romans, the one who broke in pieces and fragmented the unity of the church in Rome will himself be broken into pieces by a united church in Rome. There is an eschatological end-time thing here to this. There's a point to this, but the point is more immediate in the fact that Paul is predicting the effect of Romans the epistle. Shattering into pieces, the one who shattered into pieces the unity of the saints in Rome. That's the effect of an, of an epistle. My prayer is that this will be the effect of the teaching of this epistle in our time. So then, Paul is even more emphatic about these people whom he warns about. He says they serve, or we could say they move on their own belly. They serve their own belly. We've studied this at some length in Philippians 3, 18 to 19, the enemies of the cross. Paul adds there that they are idolaters whose God is their belly. Now, the connectedness to Philippians is telling on many levels here. This kind of dissenter and false teacher got around a lot in the time of Paul. Galatians. It's all about the false teachers that came in and dissuaded them from him who called you by the grace of Christ to another gospel, which isn't another, Paul says, at all. It's a cursed gospel. The problem was in Philippi. The problem was in Corinth. The problem was everywhere. It was anticipated even in the Ephesian epistle when he says, there are men who lie in wait to deceive in Ephesians 4.14. And he says, I'm writing this so that you won't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. So this kind of dissenter, sower of discord is what Proverbs 6 puts it as, and the false teacher, they got around in the time of Paul. They were kind of like the thorn in the side of Paul everywhere he went. Imagine you have all this desire for missionary success. You see a wonderful success of a group of one-time pagans or one-time religious Jews all together as a church, and then you hear a couple years later, 
someone has come in and fragmented the church or caused the church to defect or several churches as in Galatia. Can you imagine what that did to Paul, the suffering that he had to go through with that? And that explains some of his tone in Galatians, for example. Their gospel, and I put that in upside-down commas, denied the centrality of the cross of Christ. And they are enemies, both of its universal rectifying impact. This is a central thing now, I'm telling you right now. They are enemies of the cross, both in its universal rectifying impact... and in its individual, personal, sanctifying power. Idolaters do not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 says. Now, because we know that all human beings are ultimately going to be justified, how do we handle verses like, no one, that person doesn't inherit the kingdom of God? Well, we have to deal with that under a new understanding. Now, my dear friend Jim accuses me of being afraid to mention this guy's name. <laughs> and uh, he, Jim has found the best books I've ever read, including Ilaria Romelli. But he found one that's going to surpass her, I think. And his name is Congdon. And I'm not afraid to mention him. But he's doing something that I always wanted to do, that I wanted to do for about 10 years. And he's already doing it. Robin Perry, who wrote The Evangelical Universalist as Gregory MacDonald, because he had to use a pseudonym at first, he commissioned, because he's now the head of Whiff and Stock Publishers, he commissioned this guy, this man, who's a wonderful theologian, a young guy, really, to write a systematic theology. What would a systematic theology look like with the universal salvation at the center? Because there's never one been written, never. What would it look like if at the heart of that systematic theology there was the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ? And so this guy's doing it. So I'm not afraid to mention his name, Jim. He's only kidding me anyways. I can't remember if it's it's David or... But it's C-O-N-G-D-O-N if you want to look him up. Now... This is the point of the cross, what we've discovered, is that it has a universal rectifying effect. And so that changes how you view theology, ecclesiology, angelology, demonology, homardiology, eschatology, Christology, and theology. It it rearranges it. You know what it does? It recapitulates systematic theology. A recapitulation of systematic theology is what we need today. So God will be calling some young people into theological seminaries in which teachers like this are teaching this. This has to be a movement in our time in history. It will be the greatest service we can do to our generation and to the ones that follow. What you're doing right now is the best thing you can do for the next generation and the ones to follow. Now, 
because they are slaves to their own sarks or flesh, their own Adamic ontology under sin, these types of teachers speak in direct opposition to the rectification of absolutely all human beings taught by Paul in Romans 5.18, really 5.15 through 19, at the heart of the heart of the center. And they also teach against his sanctification doctrine in Romans 6.1 to 8.13. And so they, they hit both the universal impact of the cross and the personal sanctifying influence of the cross because our lives are supposed to be cruciform in shape. And this doctrine doesn't promote a cruciform Christian spiritual life. It's more like ways to preserve your life in Adam with religious camouflage. Now, I realize in saying that, we've taken a pretty big bite out of crime here. We've taken quite a chunk out of what Christianity is up to today, that it may be just a camouflage religiosity. Stings and it hurts. So, this message of these phonies rejects the center of Paul's message, both the justification and the sanctification, both of which are located in the center towards which we are pressing in Romans the epistle. Now, whether these dissenters are on one extreme Gentile Christians, so-called, who say, continue in sin that good may come, or let's continue in sin that good may come, or on the other flank, Jewish Christians who tout the saving and sanctifying effect of physical circumcision, either side, they're not universally willing slaves of the king of kings, but of their own Adamic ontology under sin. With their contradictory gospels, air quotes around gospels, they are at the farthest point of Adam's fallenness. Sometimes Hollywood gets it kind of right by making the preacher the worst guy in the world. I used to say, why is it always? Now, it used to be the butler did it. Now it's the preacher. The preacher is the most vicious SOB that you can put on a screen today. But the idea behind that may be correct because the preacher that preaches a false gospel has hit the extreme of Adamic fallenness in this world. They're the ones that Jesus Christ head-butted against. They're the ones that he said were a generation of vipers. Can't, you cannot imagine the responsibility that preachers have because this is a... The, the hazards of our profession, the occupational hazards of our profession are quite extensive and serious. God is gracious, though, thank God. So turn away from them sounds to me not extreme, but you know what it sounds like? Intelligent, reasonable, responsible, and loving advice. 
Romans 16, 19. Notice what he says here. It gets a little, don't worry. I can, you can breathe again. Breathe, breathe, breathe. For the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Does that sound a little, does that have a little ring to it? Because what did we say all the way back at the other pole of Romans? The report of your faith is proclaimed all over the world. Now he says, the report of your obedience has reached everyone. See the, the rhyming there? And because Paul's whole thing is about promoting what? The obedience of faith in all the nations. So for the report of your obedience has reached everyone, go all the way back to Romans 1.8, the report of your faith has been proclaimed all around the world because it's about the faith of saints in the heart of the heart of the beast called Rome, the heart of the Caesarean cult. Therefore, I rejoice over you. I think Paul's pointing back here to Zephaniah 3.17 where the Messiah, where God, Yahweh himself, rejoices over his people with singing and he rests in his love for them. Because why? Because their shame has been overcome and is now honor. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The whole thing is about a shame and an honor society, which Robert Jewett, I think, captured marvelously in his commentary, which he called a shorter commentary, to which I reply, ha, ha, ha. So, therefore, I rejoice over you. But... And he explains now why he used certain tone at certain times in the epistle, why a pastor has to, too. He says, but I want you to be experienced. Wise is the word here, but experienced is the sense. I want you to be experienced with respect to that which is good, but innocent in the sense of inexperienced in that which is evil. In Romans 1, we hear about evil and the inventiveness of evil. People who get into evil also begin to invent ways to be evil. And it's, a, it's a, an experience of evil. So he wants them to be... It's like Jesus said, wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. I want you to be experienced... With respect to that which is good and innocent in that which is evil. But I don't want you to be so innocent that you don't recognize evil and understand it when it comes. Don't be unsuspecting. Don't be naive. The exposition of the the word gives light. It gives understanding to the naive. I think that's 119, 130 in the Psalms. So the report of their obedience has reached everyone, according to Romans 16, 19. The news about their faith is proclaimed in all the world, according to Romans 1, 8. See, we're pincher, the pincer movement's working here. Paul is particularly delighted at this report because it's his own mission to bring about the obedience of faith in all the nations, in Romans 1, 5. You see, so he rejoices over them, just as Yahweh rejoices over Jerusalem and Zion in Zephaniah 3.17, in an eschatological passage, for Yahweh says that their shame has been turned into honor or praise. We find echoes of that in Romans 1.16, 
and in Romans 2, 28 and 29. Paul wants for his readers just exactly what the writer to the epistle to the Hebrews wants for his readers. And that is to be experienced in the word of righteousness in Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. And first, we have to know what the word of righteousness is. It's actually the message of God's saving act in Christ. That's where you want to be wise. Wise with respect to the salvation that is in the, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3.15. I told you that we're going to be interpreting based on some of the pastorals, but you're going to have to find the pastorals as I talk. I'm not just going to say, tonight I'm speaking on the pastorals and their interpretation of Romans. Not that, I may do that some other times, but so far it's been subtle and hidden. Paul, in other words, wants them to be discerning. He wants them to be discriminating between good and evil. He wants them to know the difference between that which is beneficial and that which is detrimental to sanctification. And so you do find yourself saying, ultimately, well, will this hobby over the next years of my life be detrimental to my sanctification or will it be beneficial to my sanctification or is it just neutral and it's just kind of a diversion i've been doing that a long time with books i read i like to read mystery novels but i have to say okay i'll read i'll study the best part of my day goes to study many hours of study many tours of study then i'll take 15 20 minutes at night and read a bit of a novel take four or five months to read a novel and so i have to Say, blessed is a man who doesn't condemn himself in the thing which he allows. I allow that because it's not detrimental to my sanctification. In fact, it would be detrimental if I didn't have any diversions. Same with you. You have to have some kind of diversions. But you have to decide, why would we want to do something that is directly detrimental? So, you're talking about someone and... You haven't had too much to drink, so you're still thinking. And you say, would it be detrimental to my sanctification to speak of this person in terms of gossip? Of course it would be. Would it be not walking any longer in love? Yes, it would be. So will it be better for me to just be silent or to speak highly of the individual, even though I just heard that they said very bad things about me? What would that be the right thing to do there? Well, it's not what would Jesus do. It's what would be detrimental to a sanctified life. What would be detrimental to my brother, my sister, the body of Christ? What would be beneficial? Comes right down to our thinking and our doing. That's pastoral. He wants them to be discriminating between good and evil. In the sense of what's beneficial versus what's detrimental to their own personal sanctification in Christ. So Paul is very pastoral in that regard. Knowledge and discernment, 
as we learned, I think, I hope you remember, in Philippians 1, 9 to 10, knowledge, epinosis, and discernment, eistasis, are the banks of the river where love flows and where its flow increases. Otherwise, it becomes a swamp. On the sides, on the banks of the river, which was love, there has to be discernment and there has to be a precise supernatural knowledge of God. Those are the banks. Otherwise, it just goes out and becomes a swamp, and it becomes kind of like cultural or political liberalism, which is as phony as the day is long, and or it becomes a kind of pseudo-compassionate thing, which people just talk about and yammer on about but don't really think about. And so Romans 16.20, now the God of peace, and this is really shocking to me, the God of peace will crush (laughs) into pieces. (laughs) The God of peace, so I translated it this way, and I'm very content with this translation. The God of peace will soon break in pieces the adversary, Satan, Satana. The God of peace will soon break in pieces pieces the adversary under your feet under your feet but I thought it was his seed that would crush the serpent's head under his feet yeah it was it is he already did that at the cross but God is going to crush the whole body of the serpent and break it up into pieces under your feet shortly which implies that the feet is of the body, which is one. Now, the God of peace will soon break in pieces, and the word is soon tribo. And it doesn't just mean crush. It means to break in pieces. So I have bits and pieces is the name of the message tonight. The God of peace will soon break in pieces the adversary under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now, Romans 16:20a is extraordinarily significant to the whole situation in Rome, which Paul addresses as an ambassador of Christ with a message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors here in Christ's stead. We have the word of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5:19 and 20. So note that it is the God of peace who breaks Satan in pieces. Two pieces. He is the God of peace, while Satan is the author of dissension and confusion. So when the God of peace breaks the adversary into pieces under the feet of the saints, it is by unifying the very people whom Satan has divided and shattered into pieces by sowing seeds of discord and false teaching among them. And flattery, too. Well, you're Jews, you're Jewish Christians. You still follow the scruples of Torah. You're better than they are. Those pagans, they just come flocking into Christ and do whatever the hell they want. You're better than they are. Or, no, you know, you Gentile Christians, you're better than those Jews, those Jewish Christians. They're still following all those stupid scruples. They're weak in faith. See the flattery? The encomium, as it's called. The smooth speeches. All it does is feed group bias. 
Paul unveils the culprit right here. No wonder the God of this age wants to blind the minds of people and tell commentators this doesn't belong in Romans. I don't see how it fits. It uses different words than he did elsewhere, so it doesn't fit. How can you, who profess to be wise, be so stupid? Is what I would say to many commentators, but they're already dead, the ones I read anyways. So I'm fearless about how I speak about them. But I will see them again, so let's... Now, when the God of peace breaks the adversary into pieces... It's by unifying the very people whom Satan has broken into pieces through discord and false teaching. So the situation, and I'll close with this, among the saints in Rome is fragmentation and polarization. I remember that series done by Colonel Theme years ago, and I really got a lot out of it. Fragmentation, you fragment and then polarize, set each against the other. Fragmentation and polarization. The saints are in pieces. It's like, now only people my age will remember this, because I was 13 when this song came out in 1964 by the Dave Clark Five. For a little while, they were nose and nose with the Beatles. They were winning the popularity race, the Dave Clark Five. And one of their songs was, I'm in pieces, bits in pieces. They say it nine times in the course of a three-minute song. And I used to sing it, I'm in pieces, bits and pieces, failing to recognize, because I was only 13, that they were in bits and pieces because a girl left them. I'm in pieces, bits and pieces. And I looked up the lyrics, and I think it's in there like nine times. Okay, we get it. But it reminded me of what Paul's doing here. For the first time, Paul unveils the culprit in this divisiveness, this mutual hostility, Rooted in the pride of group biases. It's Satan, the invisible adversary, the sower of the seeds of discord and disharmony, the promoter of divisiveness through human pride, disunity and confusion, leading in some cases to resentment. Not in all cases. And all of these groups, there are five groups, and I'm going to hit them in just a minute, just so you'll know and have something to chew on. For the next couple of weeks. This is important. There are five groups. Paul doesn't reprimand a couple of them. But he reprimands others. The picture that's painted here then in Romans 16.20 is shocking. The implications are out of this world. It's, un, it's incredibly shocking. The word Paul deploys again is soon tripse. This is the, if you look the the exact Greek, it's spelled like this, suntripse, but that's a form of the, in its vocabulary form, of suntribo, suntripse, God will crush under the feet. It's the future active indicative form of the verb suntribo, which means to break in pieces, bits and pieces. The saints who are in Rome have been broken into pieces by the adversary. You see it? Under his feet, as it were. Paul S. Minear. I've tried to get Mike Minear from Ohio to answer the question Are you related to this guy? Paul S. Minear. 
he wrote an invaluable little book, and it really is little in terms of brevity, but it's potent, powerful. It's invaluable, and it's, it's invaluable. It's called The Obedience of Faith, The Purposes of Paul in the Epistle to the Romans. And he does us a great favor by listing five groups. And these five groups are identified in Romans 14 and 15. And they're dealt with. 14 and 15 of Romans shouldn't be shuffled off to the side. Well, I'm not going to deal with that part because Romans 1 through 4 is the real important. Or Romans 5 through 8 is the real important. Romans 9, no. Romans 14 and 15 deals with the dismantling of these group biases and the uniting of the church there. But in brief, they are, and this is very brief. We'll expand on them in the future. In brief, they are five groups. Number one, the weak in faith, and that should be in quotes because it's a name that they were called by another group, the weaklings, the weak in faith. But these are the weak in faith, number one group, the weak in faith who condemned the strong in faith. I recommend, honestly and seriously, that you read in any translation, the best you can find, English, Romans 14.1 through 15.13. Carefully. You're going to get to the heart of the matter there. There are some things that are in there that are phenomenal. The second group is the strong in faith. And that's a name that they give to themselves. But these are the strong in faith who scorned and despised the weak in faith. Read those passages and see if you can find these groups. Their group with their own biases. The third group is the doubters. Paul talks about he that doubts is damned if he eats. And that is a famous saying, but that really is found in Romans 14, 23. But the doubters, they're kind of like an in-between group. That's why the third group, they're kind of in between these other groups. The fourth group, the weak in faith, mostly Jewish Christians, but some Gentiles who attended synagogue and adopted Judaism before they became saved. The weak in faith were those who still followed some of the Jewish scruples, like kosher meals, following of certain days, and holy days and Sabbaths and new moons. And they, they didn't do it because they thought it would save them. They just did it as a tradition, and Paul didn't destroy them over it. So there's the fourth group, or the weak in faith, who did not condemn the strong. They didn't have anything bad to say about the Gentiles. They were kind of rejoicing that the Gentile people were coming in and that God granted them repentance, and they were happy about it. So... These groups really aren't reprimanded. They're encouraged, though, to be strong in faith in reality. The fifth group is the strong in faith. Paul belongs to this group. The truly strong in faith, even though he was a Jewish Christian, he identified with the Gentiles. The strong in faith who did not despise the weak. I think Priscilla and Achilla belong to that group, too. They were strong in faith. They knew they didn't have to follow the Jewish scruples. They knew that physical circumcision didn't have sanctifying power. They knew that kosher meals weren't demanded. They knew that they didn't have to follow certain days, but they respected people that did follow certain days. It's like some Protestants hating Catholics because Catholics have holy days. And 
there's other Protestants that don't despise Catholics because they have holy, because a lot of Protestants have a lot of holy days too. They celebrate Pentecost. They celebrate different days. I don't even know when those days fall on. So they probably might hate me for being a pagan. I do kind of start to identify with pagans here a lot. That's kind of frightening. So there's the fifth group. But now, but through the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll close with this, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the power of the love of the spirit of the God of peace who brings about universal reconciliation, that God of peace who brings about universal reconciliation is about to crush into pieces Satan, the great divider, under the feet of the united saints in Rome. So this promise has an eschatological point to it because all of the saints in all of the times in human history, which will be all of humanity, will experience the shattering of the adversary's power at the parousia, when all power will be placed under the feet of Messiah. That will be at the universal appearance of Jesus Christ, and listen carefully to this, when even Satan himself... who transforms himself into an angel of light, will be transformed by God into the good, from the evil to the good, and become the creature that he was before his distortion. And then some. When the creature, what the creature has done, resulting in ruin, God restores and transforms in redemption. That's why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So Paul is also predicting that the effect of this very epistle, which we call RTE, Romans the epistle, the effect of the teaching of this very epistle will be unifying and thus the means by which God breaks in pieces the adversary under their feet, unveiling the invisible culprit and destroying the works of the devil in our own time. Power is in the epistle of Romans. Well taught, rightly taught, rightly interpreted. Preached through the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of the spirit of love. So, we'll close with 1620b. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. That goes back to the beginning in keeping with our pincer movement. Romans 1.7b. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have brackets here. We have a pincer movement. This verse also looks forward to Romans 16, 24, when Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Certain commentators don't want that verse in there either. So, well, he already said the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Yeah, but he says here, the grace and, the, uh, and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. All of you saints. All is a key catchword in Romans. It's used about 75 times. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. What a profitable time it is to look into the word of truth, to discover its meaning, to find understanding through the attempt of proper interpretation. Our task is interpretation. Our goal is understanding. But without the Holy Spirit.
pouring out his love in our hearts. And without the Lord Jesus Christ, and without you, Father, and your great mercy toward us, we would not be able to interpret this epistle rightly, nor would we come to the proper spiritual understanding. So we pray that you'll continue to guide us and extend to us your undeserved grace and mercy. Pour out into our hearts the love of God through the Holy Spirit so that this congregation can be known by walking in love. And so that we would never cease walking in love against Romans fourteen fifteen. So, Father, I'm simply asking, would you continue to bless our trek through this wonderful epistle? And even as you have seemed to bless the pincer strategy, I'm following it as long as you're showing it to me. So I thank you for this privilege. So we present our bodies to you afresh in a reiterated way with more understanding as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you.